0: money episode 1164 dan simon author of the money hackers how a group of misfits took on wall street and changed finance forever
1: you're listening to so money with award-winning money guru farnoosh each day get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds authors influencers and from farnoosh herself Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I think this is going to bring around a real change like that. I do think that it's going to kill branch banking. I do think the check is pretty much dead. I think the phone is going to be the center of our financial lives, yeah.
0: We're talking about the future of money today on So Money. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Financial technology, as it used to be called, is now fintech, one of the fastest growing industries around the globe, from mobile banking to robo-advisors, Bitcoin, and everything in between. Each day, businesses, investors, consumers are grappling with this seismic change that technology has brought to banking and the finance industry. Our guest today is Daniel Simon, the author of The Money Hackers, which is the dramatic story of fintech's major players, and the book explores how these disruptions are transforming even money itself. How has the pandemic changed our relationship with money? What is the future of money? If you think it's just going to be more payment apps and Bitcoin, you might be mistaken. 20% of Americans in this country are either underbanked or not banking at all. Dan says the new wave of fintech is going to address that population. More about Dan, he is the founder and CEO of Vested, an integrated communications firm where he and his team partner with top financial and fintech companies, making him in some ways the best person to write this book. He has been a part of the fintech revolution since its inception, advising and consulting some of the biggest brands in the space, including Bloomberg and Goldman Sachs. Here's Dan Simon. Dan Simon, welcome to So Money, Alas, your book, The Money Hackers, is here. Can
1: you believe it? Thank you so much for having me. Yes, my book is here. You should, if anyone listening is thinking about launching a book, I highly recommend doing it in the middle of a pandemic. It's (laughs) a great it's a great time to, to to get a book out there.
0: Well, you know, what doesn't kill us?
1: People have had more time to read.
0: That's true. And your book in particular, focusing on the evolution of financial technology, fintech, as we call it today. Although 10 years ago, 15 years ago, what did we call it? Websites? I mean, Financial
1: technology is what we called it.
0: Financial technology. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't have-
1: a uh, way to shut down a conversation at a dinner party. People say, oh, what do you do? I work in financial technology. And you, everyone immediately ignored you. And today, you know, if you, it, not that we have dinner parties anymore, but in in our theoretical dinner party, certainly as January of this year, if if you say, "Oh, I work in fintech," you're the cent- you were the center of the universe at that dinner party. Everyone was asking how to set up their Zelle.
0: So, your book follows the misfits who took on Wall Street and changed finance forever with this so-called fintech. Disruption is a word that we use in a number of industries. Whether you're talking about, you know, uh, travel and Airbnb, a disruptor recently went public. Websites like Seamless and Grubhub, which disrupted the whole way that we, you know, order food. When you talk about disruption in the financial industry, what do you mean?
1: You're right. It's a great point, which is disruption can mean lots of things. And I think, you know, one of the things people often think about is. Our most favorite story to tell ourselves is the David and Goliath story, which is, you know, small upstart company, comes out of nowhere, does something completely different, destroys the incumbents, right? The iPhone camera version one and Kodak or Netflix and Blockbuster. 2004, Reed Hastings tries to sell Uh, Netflix to Blockbuster gets laughed out of the room. Three years later, Blockbuster goes under, right? That's a sort of classic disruption story. But there's there's other forms of disruption. And I would say in the fintech world, that happens, has happened very rarely. Actually, it's very rare that a robo-advisor has come along, a savings app has come along, and then, whoops, Bank of America's disappeared. Like, that didn't happen in finance. The disruption that we talk about here is really... The technology and the way that consumers interact with money, that's fundamentally changed. The labels on the banks, the labels on the players have stayed, frankly, much the same, with a few notable exceptions. Morgan Stanley still exists. Wells Fargo still exists. Bank of America still exists. JP Morgan Chase, they all still exist. But the things that we can do with them today are radically different than what we could do 10 years ago, and that is disruption in this sense.
0: What I find really fascinating about the rise of fintech is that while yes, technology has advanced, which has enabled these these inventions to come to the surface, but also we've learned a lot more about human psychology and the way that that impacts the way that we deal with money. And I find that the the fintech that is most successful understands that. And it's not just leveraging technology, but leveraging psychology, human psychology to create almost like the perfect experience. So for example, Digit, right? There's this app that um, I, like
1: Digit. I use Digit yeah, Digit.
0: uses your phone to help you save uses, you know, SMS technology. In fact, right? it, just,
1: it just disappears into the workflow of your life to your exactly. point of technology. So is, uh, that
0: the, is that the secret sauce is sort of marrying technology with human psychology to create the next it product, it, the, next, the next successful fintech product? It's
1: a huge part of it. If it's not the whole enchilada, it's like a lot of the enchilada, I would say, Farnoosh. It's a very interesting piece of it. And I think it can be used for good or ill, right? There was a piece yesterday I said, "Is I you know is Wall Street too fun? And if you think about a platform like Robinhood, that's all psychology, right? So giving users kind of endorphin rushes when they make trades, hacking their brains in the same way that Farmville or Fortnite has, right? Skins and dances and these little kind of uh, psychological reward mechanisms to the point where you un- you wonder, actually, has, has psychology, has human behavioral psychology gone too far? Should fintech, should finance be maybe a little bit too... A little bit more boring. But yes, you're right. What what the fintechs understood, frankly, is not the technology. That's why I think fintech is an interesting term, because the technology itself is not revolutionary. I, I wrote about this in the book. There's no cold fusion. You know, crypto is kind of interesting, but much of what we experience as consumers in the world of fintech has nothing to do with crypto. There might be a little bit of AI uh, and natural language processing that's being applied today, certainly a platform like Digit, you know, uses a fair amount of that. But it's not, it it, it isn't cold fusion. It's not something uh, quantum mechanics. It's nothing incredibly revolutionary. It is, as you say, a lot of the wrapping, the UX, the UI. And I think where traditional finance failed, um, in, you know, in and up to 2008, beyond obviously the terrible mistakes that the traditional financial institutions made in the run-up to the financial crisis, was this idea about financial literacy. And one of the things I love about you is I I, I thought what you did with Stacks House uh, was incredible. Uh, and I'm on the board at the Museum of American Finance, and I remember sending that, uh, I remember sending your video of Stacks House to the CEO of the board of the museum, uh, the, the, the CEO of the museum. And I said, we need the museum to be, more like this and he took about 5 days to get back to me <laughs> he said <laughs> he said uh, i'm not ignoring you i'm just processing my feelings about what <laughs> what to reply i think financial literacy is is super valuable but i think the banks hid behind it for so long mm-hmm. i think you know tradition why why were they so resistant <laughs> there's a lot of engineered complexity in finance there has always been it's a bit like the catholic church there's a lot of language people don't understand it's an in, it's an intermediary business essentially uh, always has been an intermediary business if we want to get if we want to get metaphysical and psychological about this it's you had to go to the bank branch so it's like going to a church there was a lot of language like latin you didn't understand and that kept you in your place as a consumer. It, it, I don't want to, obviously, I work for financial institutions, so I have to be a little a little careful. But even the financial institutions I, I work for would argue that, yes, certainly up to the advent of modern fintech in 2008, 2010, there was a lot of engineered complexity. Some of that complexity was by design to mm-hmm. keep you in your place. And I've said this a lot. I'm big on financial literacy. When asked you know, what the most powerful force in the universe was, Albert Einstein said, compound interest. So there's a lot that we can teach people about the power of finance um, as a force for good. But in some cases, this idea about financial literacy that our consumers have to educate themselves is a red herring, I think. We are the only industry that says, oh yeah, you have to be a really sophisticated user to be able to use our products. And services, if any other industry did that, they would go out of business. You don't have to be sophisticated to use a light switch or Alexa. And what, you know, Steve Jobs understood uh, was I'm going to make a product that's so simple that, you know, my 94 year old grandmother before she passed away was FaceTiming me. Right. She never had a computer her entire life, but they just made the user design so accessible, so simple that. Uh, my two kids, my young kids can use it. My, my grandmother could use it. And finance never had that. Finance was like, go to school, educate yourself, you know, get the SIE, get the Series 7, then come back and talk to me. And, and that kept finance and financial engineering a, a product of the rich, uh, frankly. And it meant that the average person was excluded uh, from it. John Stein, uh, CEO of Betterment, who I know you know and is just ste- stepping down as CEO now, uh, probably to go and roll around in big piles of money. Uh, Once said to me, one, you know, and he, he was a big he was a big influence on the book. He said, you know, financial financial literacy is BS. He said it's all a matter of u- user experience, and he's right. You know, the light switch. There's a lot of complexity to switch on your iPhone. A lot of complexity to even switch on the light bulb. But but the user experience is very very simple, and so we don't expect everybody to know how to do it. Digit as you you flag is the one I always give as a great example. I don't have to think about Digit. It just does it.
0: Yeah. Okay, I get that Digit is great because it talks about savings, which is low stakes. Mm. But investing is high stakes. Why you need the education sometimes in financial Decision-making, I would argue, is because it's higher stakes. It's talking about people's money, which is not the same as someone's iPhone. I'm devastated without my iPhone, but I'm telling you what, I'm more devastated if my bank account goes to zero because I didn't know what I was doing. But I also understand that money is not really math. It is psychology. It is behavior. It is Confidence, having the confidence to make decisions, and and not buying into what the industry wants you to believe, which is that it is necessarily this sophisticated, Harvard educated, required sort of strategy that you need behind getting rich. Um, but what is, so what's the balance, right? I do think literacy is important, but there's like a point to which it no longer becomes important, which then your discipline, your mindset, your behavior, your commitment really plays a role. And how does fintech marry those two things?
1: It's a great question again. And I think partly you're right. It depends on the products. There are mm-hmm. things, perhaps another way of thinking about it is which side of the ledger, you know, we're talking about. Savings is indeed a very low stakes uh, side of the ledger. If 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 Stash decides that today I can take you know three dollars and fifty cents and put it in a savings account, the outcome of that of getting that decision wrong is low. Um, if I go on Robinhood and I lever up and I get into options and it, or or some uh, or some asset class I have no business being in, um, I think it's incredibly dangerous. And I think that um, uh, and I think uh, that. You know, it's also uh, there's there's a question of how much should they be able to hack our psychology and make it exciting and make it, frankly, addictive, um, especially for young people. And that's why I work for that's why I work for companies that have financial advisors too. I'm not you know writing this book. People have have thought that what I am is like anti humans and anti financial institutions, and that would be incredibly. Uh, What's left? (laughs) Uh, Well, it it would be incredibly self-defeating because they pay about 90% of my salary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I make a lot of money publishing books. Uh, Mm -hmm. But in my day job, you know, I work for big financial institutions. I think there's a role to play for educated humans to help. One another, just like there is in medicine with a doctor. I think what's interesting, and this is maybe a little more granular we can get into, but the same technology that is powering consumers directly is also helping financial professionals like financial advisors get better at their job, support more of their customers at once, get rid of some of the hard admin stuff. Um, and he, and is meaning that their advice can go further to more people. I do think it's a it's a hard balancing act. Then again, I do see whole areas of this industry where that where that engineered complexity is still and that that kind of human inefficiency is is still very prevalent. Look at mortgages and buying a house. Real estate is the world's largest asset class, and it is still an incredibly opaque. And difficult process for a lot of people. People thinking about getting their first mortgage, they're scared. They don't know where they don't want a mortgage. They want a home, but the system has not made it easy for them. That's where things like Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, I think, you know, is trying to take out some of the complexity, take out some of the inefficiency.
0: Your book looks at the journey of fintech, how it began, where it's taking us. Where is it taking us? I'm, I'm most cons- curious because also you started out by saying that, you know, it's not always fun putting out a book during a pandemic, but you also put out the book during a recession. And I'm sure there were some learnings this time around as well as there were in the 2009 recession as far as what we really need sure. when it comes to managing our money. So the, the future of fintech, what well, is it?
1: let me let me use this as an opportunity to just quickly explain what the book is right so every chapter of the book looks at an area of of finance that would have previously been bundled inside the bank savings investments peer to peer payments that's venmo or zelle sending money across borders that's what we call remittances Uh, Every one of these pieces, we initially meant to look at one individual um, who kind of came to represent that technology change. And we ended up looking at dozens of individuals. I ended up interviewing about 150 really fascinating uh, folks. And we tried to sort of squeeze as many as would be sensible in each chapter. So in investments, we looked at someone like John Stein from Betterment, in lending, we looked at Renaud Laplanche who created Lending Club, and we did all these interviews with them, and it was great. I think what I've learned in terms of where we've got to and what's next is when these people said about in 2008, quite often at the end of, as you say, the last crisis and the last recession, they got into it because recessionary environments always create innovation. Part of the reason is that the cost-benefit analysis (laughs) of starting your own company changes in a recession. In good markets, you have to leave a a really well-paying job. In recessions, you might not even have a job. So if you think you might have the next Facebook or the next lending club or the next uh, betterment, then what's the harm in in getting in a garage and getting some of your friends and starting it, right? So that's one of the reasons they started it after a recession or during a recession. The other reason is that there was a just in 2009, 2010, just this huge disconnect from a consumer experience perspective between what you could Expect from finance and what you could expect from other industries. Remember, we had Facebook, we had Google, we had Amazon was getting great. Um, you know, we had Netflix, you know, we had platforms like Spotify and Pandora. So, you know, everything was moving as a service, everything was incredibly cheap, everything was at your fingertips you know companies were starting to use data to know about you oh you bought this you might also like that oh you watched this you might also like that and then you know record scratch you try doing anything in finance in 2010 and it was just painful right try splitting a pizza you know it's like oh i'll write you a check i mean what you know where what the hell is going on so um much of what i cover in the book is about bringing the industry kind of just up to par with our other experiences as consumers right so using data being personalized being accessible being easy for us to use but what i'm often fond of saying is it's kind of like middle class rich people fintech i do think that you know it, it, you could it's good to split a pizza if you can afford a pizza, right? Thank
0: you for saying that because my follow up to this was, okay, we are a woke nation and we realize now more than ever the inequities when it comes to things like the racial wealth gap and even right. access to literacy, access to resources. Right. And I'm seeing a little bit, and I and and I think it's a part of a movement of people of color starting financial resources for
1: people of color. Is that the future too? Yeah, the future is, I mean, I'm a Brit, right? So we look, we're sort of weirdly in the UK, the issue is more intersectional. It's more about class and money, which tends to have a racial bent in the States. Um, You know, those things tend to be more correlated. But I think given that we're talking about money, it really comes down to money, so that is to say, we need to think about the other 50% that fintech didn't touch, right? And there is a very high level of correlation of that 50% with people of color or immigrants or, frankly, women. If you think yeah. about this, session, has been, who did this uh, – let's take a look at the PPP loans that were distributed this year. Most of them came through traditional banks. Most of those traditional banks didn't have technology in place. What did that mean? That meant that they had to, in order to be able to get money out, they had to prioritize relationships with companies with whom they already had existing lines of credit. You know which companies don't have existing lines of credit? Minority and women owned businesses don't have existing lines of credit. So they went to the back of the line and many of them failed uh, because the banks didn't have the technology in place. So so the money and the, the the money and the minority thing go hand in hand, if if that makes sense, right? So I, I don't see it as you know, do we need um, black fintech? Do we need Latinx fintech? Although those things absolutely exist, I, I you know there are um, uh, there are some robo advisors that look specifically at um, savings and investments inside the Latinx community. I did a great interview with Iliana Musa from. Um, Morgan Stanley, who has some very specific thoughts about what that community has as a challenge. I look at it not so much from an ethnic perspective, more from the, the just the, the 99 versus the 1% perspective. You know, fintech doesn't need to get any more sophisticated to drone the sushi into my mouth, right, as a white, the fish uh, has
0: to get better. That's what has to happen. The more system. People
1: to, more people have to access. More people have to eat. Twenty-five percent of Americans are food insecure right now. Exactly. Exactly. So when Americans. you're telling
0: me that, you know, PPP went to businesses that had lines of credit. Okay, well, then that means that we need to get more lines of credit in the hands of women and minority businesses. That's not fintech. That's a policy change.
1: That's a that's a directive. Yes and no. Okay, so I was very briefly on the Bloomberg uh, presidential campaign. It wasn't a very long campaign, um, and I I sort of took on the role of fintech liaison for that. And one of the reasons I think fintech has potential at the intersection of policy is because. It, I think it is a political, but I do believe it can solve some of the things um, that policy can't. We're in we're in policy gridlock right now, and I'm from, as I said, you know, I was born and raised in a relatively social kind of woke uh, culture, and so we have a more redistributive policy. But but let's leave aside policy issues for a second. There are several things I think fintech can do um, to create a more equitable world. Let's take lending and talk about lending. Who was lending when the banks weren't distributing? Well, people like um, uh, Cabbage, uh, which uh, you know is someone I talk about in my book, Catherine Petralia and I were very close during that. They just got bought by American Express. Why, did, why were Cabbage able to distribute? Because they built the technology to be able to make credit evaluation decisions more quickly. Okay. So yes, it's a policy issue, but it can also be a technology issue. If you've only ever served the rich, Mm -hmm. you hired a lot of humans to do the work. You never invested in the technology. If we invest in the technology, we can extend credit to more people. we got, we are forcing as a nation, massive income volatility on a huge percentage of our workforce. The middle class as we know it, that is you show up, you get a job, you get a steady paycheck. Um, has been eviscerated. And so 50% of this country uses credit in a really different way from the way I use credit. I use credit to fund very big purchases that I can't afford to buy it off all in one go. Widescreen TVs, new cars, maybe a boat, maybe a house. Uh, mm-hmm. The rest of America uses credit. And of course, this, this gets extremely acute in communities of color Or minority communities or immigrant communities, they use credit to smooth the peaks and troughs of the income volatility that they experience because they're a gig worker or because they're a shift worker at Starbucks and they have horrible shifts. Okay. And it's forcing this lumpiness into their income. So credit for them is just merely a way to bridge, you know, one paycheck to the next. So credit evaluation and extending credit more responsibly to more people is is a big thing that technology is going to have to solve for over the coming years. By the way, as part of that same as part of that same continuum because of income volatility, another area of fintech that we need to focus on in the future is real-time payment. People need to get paid if they do a job and, and there are a number of companies that have sprung up over the last 2 or 3 years that are focused on just that. How do we? If you work today, then you don't work tomorrow, or you drive an Uber and and you get rides today and you don't get them tomorrow. How do you at least make money today so you don't need to go and get access to that credit? So for me, the white middle class or upper class, you know, one percent fintech is, is it's on par with Netflix. It's on par with Spotify. People keep asking me what's next, and they keep they keep meaning what's next for. The people who already use Venmo or Digit, um, mm-hmm. and I, I actually answer by saying it's not about you. Next, it's about the rest of America. Yes. You know, about twelve percent of Americans are completely unbanked. More Americans own a cell phone than a bank than a bank account, which is a terrible indictment for a company of our of our wealth. And another twelve percent. Uh, are underbanked. That means they might have some banking relationships, but they don't have what we would consider, you know, a sophisticated modern uh, set of banking engagements. And so that's that's over 20% of the US population that are unbanked or underbanked. And I think, yes, of course, policy is part of the solution. It should be a big part of the solution. But in the absence of policy, I think technology does offer great potential.
0: Is it all about the phone now? If your if you're, fintech is not phone enabled, it's basically not fintech?
1: I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard where people are telling teaching their grand, grandparents how to use tap and pay because they don't want them touching yeah. money. So I think one of the things that this pandemic has done is it's like grandpa isn't going to the – you know, grandpa's on Venmo and grandpa isn't going to the bank branch anymore. Yeah, I think you know if you remember the you know the Depression babies who are the grandparents that kind of store all the plastic bags. I think there's gonna. I think this is going to bring around a real change like that. I do think that it's going to kill branch banking. I do think the cheque is pretty much dead. I think the phone is going to be the centre of our financial lives. Yeah, and I'm okay with that. I think the phones are more accessible than banks. There are entire areas that we call banking deserts in this country as banks you know, retrench. And we've seen that even through this crisis. Um, not if you're in Manhattan, every corner, baby. Absolutely. Because Manhattan isn't, but uh, Manhattan isn't in, is in America. I, I hate to break no, it. No, it's not.
0: Yeah. But um, it's just annoying. Every uh, small business uh, is now, you know, on a corner. If you're on a corner in Manhattan, watch out. Because the banks are coming for you. The ATM machine actually is coming for you. Dan, you described the founders of a lot of these fintech startups as misfits. What is the character archetype of these people? Are they, they're not who we, we think necessarily? Very
1: few of them are. And then the ones that may be are women. <laughs> so by which I mean, they never fit in. Like Blythe Masters spent her entire life inside J.P. Morgan, uh, but she was always sharp-elbowed. And by, by virtue of her sex was... Not welcome, frankly, and you know her misfit nature kind of rings true. The others were technologists or lawyers or consultants or graduates. You know, when the guys created Venmo, they wanted to make an app for tipping your favorite band. You know, Renaud Laplante describes himself as a double misfit because he was a technologist. He wasn't. He was, and he was French. Um, and 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 that's and you know part of that was because he got his his credit card bill. And because we had, they have more caps on how much credit cards can charge in France. He was just utterly disgusted by the amount that the bank was charging, and he said, "Wait a second! I lent you. You know, when you have my money on deposit, you give me X, but when I borrow money from you, you you charge me Y. The spread on that is enormous." And he said it offended him twice: once as a technologist, and twice as a Frenchman. So you know, most of the people—they're not your grandparents. You know, investment banker. They're really not. That's why they started making apps that looked and felt more like like this country. You know, frankly, people like Ishmael Ahmed, who created um, World Remit. You know, he was a he was a refugee. He he had been in the Somali civil war. He narrowly escaped uh, with his life by hiding in the wheelbed of a truck. Um, he got a scholarship to the London School of Economics. He worked his way up. I mean, he's not none of these people, and he's African you know, none of these people look like you, you know, the golfing financial advisor of past.
0: Right. And, and none of them were from the big banks, essentially, right? Like these if were,
1: they were, they didn't fit there. Like, as I said, right, right. Like, it was- like a blithe, you can't say she wasn't in finance. She is financed through and through, but there's many documented episodes of her, you know, rubbing people the wrong way, ending up in conversations where it really did come down to the fact that women were treated. You know, I don't need to tell you women have been treated very shabbily inside the institutional financial industry until you know relatively recently in history. Right before she passed away, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to know Mickey Siebert, who was the first woman mm-hmm. you know, seat on the board floor. of the Game, you know, on the floor of the stock exchange. You know, when she when she rocked up at the stock exchange, there wasn't even a woman's toilet at the at the New York Stock Exchange. You know, many of the very senior women that have spent their careers inside Wall Street, you know, will tell you about the first 10 or 15 years of that experience. And it's not pleasant. Today, I'm pleased to say things are changing and they're changing really fast for the better, thanks to some incredibly pioneering, uh, trailblazing. Uh, I'm just using women here as one example of, of of a minority group that's been, you know, underserved by finance, right? Um, and then, of course, Sally Crouch with Elevist, and 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 many others that are sitting inside financial institutions. I mean, J.P. Morgan just had these just had two female CFOs in succession. Yeah that's the first time in history that we've seen something yes. like that. So history is changing, but it's not been easy for for women or people of color inside finance. And so if you look at my book and I tried to get the gender balance, I don't think I've got quite 50, 50 uh, men to women. Uh, but if, if you look at my book, they are all outsiders and misfits by, by virtue of, you know, a funny accent or their gender or the color of their skin, or the fact that they just had never worked inside a financial institution. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, frankly, I'm a bit of a misfit. I'm an immigrant. Uh, I've lived in America longer than I've lived anywhere else, but I never lost, um, my plummy British accent and not out of finance. We love you for it, Dan. Thank you so much. I'm not out of finance. I was a speech writer and a, and a, and a writer by profession an English and French literature major. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to fit on wall street naturally. Um, but I love it and I love finance. And, and, and so I'm, i don't fit. And so i think i was i was drawn to this book about all of these people who don't fit and have done something amazing by virtue of their of their of their ill-fittedness.
0: In your other life you are also a storyteller as the CEO and co-founder of Vested, which is a communications firm. You represent top financial and fintech companies. Was this always the plan was to sort of work in the money space? tangentially or ancillary you know but not obviously in the financial industry you're not like you know, making excel spreadsheets in the financial industry but you are supporting the industry you are working in partnership with the industry was there always a fascination towards that
1: i, mean, I think you know it's never what you no one at 16 gets up in the morning and thinks you know i'm gonna up for wall street man this is yeah <laughs> Mom, dad i we'll figured it you out you know um, and I have a really weird back. I mean, I was an English and French literature major before that. I actually quit school and everything because I was in a boy band in the UK in the 90s. Ooh, wow.
0: That's a whole other podcast.
1: It's separate. It's a, we what don't have a
0: boy that. band called, were you the front lead or were you like I was one of Danny four. from Yukon on the block? Were you more like a Jordan or a Danny?
1: I was uh, I am well, pleased to tell you I don't know what that means, but I was. Uh, but I think it means whichever one was the one that was in it for about a hot second, and they replaced me, and, wow. and the cast changed over three times. It was an entirely manufactured boy band. It did have a TV show in the UK for one season. It, it had two top forty hits, but I—that is, as you say—a podcast for another day. So I never. I mean, if you'd have told you know blue haired bopping Dan at 17 or whatever that at 40 he'd be doing podcasts about his book about money on Wall Street. No one ever thinks they're going to get into it. When I fell into it, I fell in love with it. Money is at the you know is the heart of everything and finance the, the machinery of finance the what what Hamilton, you know, understood and created in this in this nation is so interesting and so valuable and so important. For people's lives, and I think that's the thing that motivates me. You know, when when we, thanks for giving us the shout out, of Vested, You know, we're a, we're a very successful communications marketing firm. Our clients are all the biggest financial institutions and technology companies that you can that you can think of. And every new member that comes into the firm, you know, I give them some variant of the speech about why this stuff matters and why it's not immediately what you think to get into. In the way that, you know, PR for celebrities or, you know, consumer products might be. But I I promise them that there's nothing. I've worked in those industries, too, and there's nothing under the surface. Uh, But when you scratch under the surface of finance, as I said, it's an engineered complexity. It takes a lot to get into it. But once you're in, you start to see how important it is. And there are issues right now. You raised this crisis You know, whether we talk about wealth and income inequality, whether we talk about the K shaped recovery, whether we talk about the fact that 25%, a quarter of all kids in America right now are food insecure, these are money issues, these are finance issues. And I come to work every day excited to tell stories and think hard about how to make that better Uh, because a lot of it is about people's access to money, you know, why wages aren't increasing, economics, what's happening in a perennially low interest rate environment, why assets are increasing, the disconnect between, you know, the stock market and the real economy. These are things that my team at Vested and I talk about and have the joy of talking about uh, and and quizzing over every day. And, and, you know, best of all, we get paid for it. So I think it's really important. I think the work you do is important. And uh, while I never thought I would have, have, have fallen into it, I was so excited to write the book because it gave me the opportunity to really explore these ideas in in great detail.
0: I'll tell you, it's a fascinating read, especially now with so much changing and evolving. And I feel like on this podcast, every day I get pitched a new financial technology founder. It's an exciting experience. It's, I think, where most of the venture capital is going right now or was.
1: (laughs) It's it's reading and then it's come back again.
0: It's back again. Okay. Well, and um, I look forward to bringing Stacks House to the Museum of Finance with I your help.
1: I'm all about it. I mean, when real estate. We, so when t- we can all
0: reconvene, t- t- when we can go to ticketed events again, we'll do yeah. it.
1: And, and you know, we can get, I think we can get like a, a an old Panera bread for like $2.75. We can get a whole building now. So in downtown. Yeah,
0: that's so for sure.
1: So let's do it.
0: Daniel Simon, thank you so much and happy new year.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, there. she has been great.
0: The book, again, is called The Money Hackers, How a Group of Misfits Took on Wall Street and Changed Finance Forever. Available everywhere. And if you go to danielpsimon.com, you can download a free chapter. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money.